me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, for our time in God's Word. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and of course, the sermon notes uh, in your bulletin will be a good help to you along the way here as well. As we head toward our text, uh, I have a question for you and a story to read, okay? Uh, My question for you is this, uh, how good are you at confessing sin? I mean yours, not someone else's. Most of us are fairly adept at confessing someone else's sin or the sin of a nation, but yours in particular. Uh, How quickly do you run in that direction or what happens in your heart? So my little story to help you think about that, this is some years old now, I must tell you, but I've hung on to it because I think it's kind of, kind of uh, well, it's got a good story to it. It's written by a pastor friend of mine over a decade ago, just to give you a little uh, sense of timing. So he says this, I was opening the mail Saturday and there was a letter that left me momentarily puzzled. There was an official looking document with a picture of my truck going down the freeway including a close-up of my license plate. Suddenly it became clear, this was a speeding ticket. The level of detail was both astonishing and disconcerting. I was caught between milepost 73 and 74 on Monday, October 6th at 4.26 p.m. I recall that I was on my way to a pastor's conference. There was a complete description of my vehicle, including the make, model, year, and even the vehicle registration number. They had my full address, including the extra four digits of my zip code. I don't even know my zip code extension. My photo was viewed by Cadet Matt Rogers, who issued me this ticket for $137 for going 71 miles an hour in a zone posted for 60. Now, I think it's gone up since then, as some of you might confess later. Now, he says, when the reality of the ticket finally sank in, my heart complained that this was unfair. I had no legitimate reason why, really. It just seems that if you're going to find me for going too fast, you should at least take the time to pull me over and tell me so. A camera is too easy. It's too hard to get around. An image of those dark plastic license plate covers suddenly flashed across my brain. Hmm, what would those cost? Eventually accepting that I was caught red-footed, I nursed a little grudge that the speed limit was stupid. Mm -hmm. After all, the the limit is 70 further south, and then you come to this long stretch through Sahelis when the limit is dropped to 60. Why? There's nothing in or around Sahelis worth slowing down for. Are they trying to pretend that there's some important metropolis or something? Now, I have to pay money because of their misguided attempt to prop up their provincial self-esteem. It took nearly an hour to quit my rebellion and repent. Right away, okay, I interject, an hour is all? I got one of these bad boys a long time ago, and I'm, well... He says, it took nearly an hour to quit my rebellion and repent. The truth is, I was speeding. There is a penalty, and I must pay. Moreover, I'm getting off easy. I was only fined for one second of speeding. If they had a camera along every mile of my trip, I might owe them my life savings. Then add all the other times in my life I have broken the speed limit. This ticket is exceedingly gracious. 
It is a reminder to me that there is a camera on every mile of every road in every room in my house, recording every word I say and even my thoughts. It is all uncovered and laid bare before the judge. And then he quotes Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. A speeding ticket, he says, is the least of my worries. So how good are you at confessing sin? I don't just mean speeding tickets, for goodness sakes. If that was the only problem, uh, we'd be in good shape, out of money, but in good shape. How good are you at confessing sin? When you're caught red-footed or red-handed, what happens in your heart? Well, this morning we come to one of the most well-known texts in the book of Isaiah, certainly Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 40 and others. But Isaiah 6 towers among the, above them all in terms of familiarity and its impact because here we see Isaiah being given a very unique gift from God, and that is a, a clear picture of him. What is he like? And so he tells about that. This is where Isaiah is called, so to speak, to be a prophet. So it's really significant, both what happens and who is involved and what it does in terms of this book. We're going to look at all 13 verses. And my hope is, yes, that we'll think about that element of a sinner, like Jonathan Edwards, a sinner in the hands of an angry God, that famous sermon. But, but specifically that we'd be captured by the image of God that Isaiah was presented with and he now shares with us. So that's my prayer, that God would help us with that. Would you join me as we pray and ask God's help on this moment this morning? Our Father, coming to your word is indeed a significant moment in the life of the church, and we ask for your help. Each of us comes to this moment in this text uh, with needs in our life and our heart, and most of all, we need you to help us and care for us and guide us. But this morning, our Father, would you, would you help us to open our hearts to you, to hear clearly and carefully the word of God, and to know that here in this text, this inerrant, infallible word of, of God in book form, our Father, we, we want to hear you and to meet with you here. So by your spirit, would you help us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me. If you look with me at your sermon notes, you'll see a couple of things. Uh, As always, there is the list of reminders up top, review, places we have been in the last couple of weeks. And then you come to the section called Today's Text. And if you look at me at the second paragraph, because I've commented already on the first, uh, Isaiah 6 lays the groundwork, really, for the next little section up through chapter 9. And if you like to think theologically, here's what I mean by that. In Isaiah 6, this text, we're going to see God as glorious and holy and, the the big word, transcendent, lifted up. And then in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is where we meet Emmanuel, God with us. So imminence, his, his nearness to us. So today, we are captured by his bigness, and in the weeks to follow, his nearness to us. What a wonderful thing, wonderful that is. Now, 
I've broken down my, my uh, comments under the two headings, of course, as you see there in front of you, verses 1 through 4. And then I, even though it's in the middle of a paragraph, I put verses 5 through the end of the chapter in one group as well. So that's the way we're going to look at this together. But would you listen carefully as I read God's word, and then we'll look at it together. But Isaiah 6, 1 to 13, God's word. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. God's word. And then away we go into King Ahaz and the sign of Emmanuel. Well, this text is intended, I think, by God and certainly Isaiah to capture us. It is what I've called here a corrective. It is a corrective power of God's overwhelming glory. By corrective, I mean by that we often have a view of God that is not worthy of him. We often view him as frail, lacking wisdom, powerless, distant, absent, We often view God wrongly, and I think this text is a corrective to us in our view, our understanding of God. So what I have done here uh, in front of you then with my notes is I have five things I want to think with you about regarding God, and then uh, that'll be the majority of our time, and then uh, more briefly, verses 5 through 11, looking at Isaiah, as he responds, I say, in shame and humility And of course, as we'll see, appropriately so. So think with me about God. And really, this lays the groundwork for the latter half of Isaiah, because starting in chapter 40, 
we have a much bigger exposition of what God is like. But here we see these five things at least. Okay, first of all, God is living. He is living. He is the living God. And I think this is emphasized by the way Isaiah starts this account. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, certainly by noting it's the year King Uzziah died, that's a time marker for others who would read this. You can figure out historically exactly when that was. But I think, I think Isaiah is including that here is more than to say, oh, it was in that year. Uh, to think about Uzziah for a moment, he was one of the good kings of the south. You remember at that time, Israel was divided into the northern group and the southern group. The northern group still called, called Israel the southern group called Judah for its larger group, of course. And in the north, no good kings. In the south, they kind of went back and forth. Uzziah was, was you know, largely a good guy. He was a king, are you ready? 52 years. Can you imagine? No, he didn't have to run for re-election. They'd have voted him out long before, I'm sure. 52 years. In a long time, he started when he was 16. What's he know about running a country? Well, he probably had some help but he stayed in the saddle for 52 years. Now, he ended his career on a down note. Of course, he uh, offered a uh, burned incense on the incense altar. It wasn't his to do. It belonged to a priest, and God struck him with leprosy. The Bible says, if you read the account earlier, uh, the older part of the Bible, previous part, and so he ended his career that way. But, but Isaiah is saying, in the year that he died, now, that might... That has political implications too. Assyria is rising as a world power right as the king dies, the long-term king. And it's right at that moment, I, I call it kind of a, it's almost like a national emergency. It's a big time of crisis, really. And Isaiah says, it's then that I saw God. I met, I had this vision of the living God. Not like these kings who come and go, and even at their best 52 years, they die. No, the one who sits on the throne is the living God. He is the one who was living, the living God at the beginning, in the beginning, who called all that is out of nothing, and the God who will be there at the end, when all that is fades into eternity. The one who would be there, as in John's writing, the revelation of, of, of Jesus Christ, it is done. He is the one who will finish it, and he will be there. Now, to think about this with you for just a couple of minutes, people sometimes struggle with the idea of God being the ever-living God. They, they think, for example, and people ask this sometimes, Mommy, Daddy, <laughs> who created God? Right? And our answer, according to Scripture, is God has always been. And even as we say that to our children, our minds struggle to capture it, don't they? Now, sometimes people ask, that are a little older than our children, who created God? I, you know, come on, eternal, how can that be? Um, the answer to who created God, some people would say, well, maybe somebody else made him. If that was the case, that somebody else would be bigger than the God who spoke it all into existence. So that person, that being would be God. And then we would say, who created that being? You see a problem here? We struggle with the idea of eternity. Even people who don't believe in an eternal God are stuck. You can point this out. They're stuck with something eternal because even if you remove a living God from the picture, you've got all this stuff like the entire universe. Well, I know it came from the Big Bang. Merry Christmas. Where'd that come from? 
Okay, it came from someplace, so you're either stuck with an eternal God or you're stuck with eternal matter. But either way, face it, your little mind can't get your little arms around it. Eternal. The God of the Bible presents himself as the living God, the one who sits on the throne and deserves to be there. He is not there because people gave him that role. They didn't vote. They said, well, I believe in you, therefore you're validated. Oh, no, no. He sits on the throne regardless of what you think. Okay? The living God. Now, keep going. Not only is God the living God, he is enthroned. He is enthroned. I saw the Lord, Isaiah says, sitting upon a throne. Now, this is significant, and I I just my goodness sakes, would want you to, to get a picture of the presence of God in heaven. That is, it is not a frantic place. He is not pacing back and forth at the mess this world is in, saying, what do I do now? There's never been a point in history where God has said, they ruined it all. This God, seated on the throne, listen to this, he knows all about you. He knows you inside and out, but he is not worried about you. Isn't that interesting? He is not worried about you. There has never been a moment in the history of mankind where God has said, uh, uh-oh, you could write a book, things God has never said. You know, uh-oh, oh no, now what shall we do? He has never called an emergency meeting of the Trinity. Okay? He is seated on a throne, not pacing back and forth. Whatever things alarm us, whether circumstances of our life or diseases or whatever, God never says, now what do I do? Never. He is the living God. He is the God who sits on the throne. We'll see him presented later as a God, of course, Isaiah 40, who holds all things in his hands, the one before whom nations are like a speck of dust on a scale, and he blows them and they go away. Kings rise and fall at his command. Proverbs tells us the heart of the king is like a channel of water in his hands. He turns it as he wills. How about that? No, he is living. He is the living God who is seated on a throne. I, I gave you a couple of other texts here in bold because I just would love to have you hear the words of the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy even as he writes on other topics, he, he pauses at two moments to speak about God, as, as we see in Isaiah 6. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, to the king of ages, or to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then as he ends this book, he says this, this description of God he who is the blessed and only sovereign. The old King James, I think, uses the term potentate. When you don't use any other time, I don't think, it means absolute ruler, unrivaled power. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Paul says, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, Paul says, amen. 
That's his description to Timothy of the God we serve and know. Wow. Now, God is living. I come back to Isaiah 6. God is enthroned. Third, God is glorious. I look here to the rest of that verse. The train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, The idea of a train is to speak of majesty, to speak of glory. Um, We, uh, on our our level, we understand this in some settings. Uh, Sometimes at a wedding, the bride wears a dress that's long or a veil that's long. And that's intended to speak of glory, of majesty, of beauty at that moment. It's supposed to be that. And sometimes when there's a long train, you might say. We who do weddings remind the maid or matron of honor to keep track of that when the bride comes up here to make sure that that, the train of her, if she's got one, is all fixed up just right. Some of you remember the moment in the movie The Sound of Music at the end where Maria von Trapp marries the captain, and there's a long train from her veil, and the kid's way back there. I mean, it's like, I don't know, 15 feet long, 20 feet. It's long. Now you're going to have to go watch the movie and find out. But it's long. And it's intended to speak of the glory of the moment, the glory of the bride. Here she is. Well, in this case, the one who is seated on a throne that is high and lifted up. It's higher than any throne that belongs to a human. And he is seated on it, not running around frantically. The train of his robe fills the temple. It speaks of glory, majesty, The train of his robe fills the temple. And here is little Isaiah seeing all of this. Can you imagine? God is glorious. Now, you come to verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Quick lesson, seraph, one. Seraphim, I am, is a plural ending in Hebrew. Seraphim means plural. Elohim, sometimes you see, speaks of plurality within the Godhead. Seraph, one. Seraphim, multiple. How many are here? We don't know. This text does not say. In this case, the seraphim are described as having six wings. Two, covering their face in the presence of such glory. Two, covering their feet. I think the imagery is they're standing on holy ground, and you better know it. And with two, it says he flew. How interesting is this? Now, sometimes people think about how to portray angels. The Bible does not always portray angels with wings. Okay? Just so you know. Sometimes people think about that. It's an angel. He's got wings. Well, hold on there, tiger. Maybe, maybe not. Um, seraphim, yes, this description. Other angels are not described in that way. Uh, sometimes when they're presented in human form, you think of the angelic visitors to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, You don't find any indication that they had a big old fatty robe because it was covering their wings. Um, They presented as normal humans. And about these these seraphim, if I may say, these are not your little naked chubby babies presented by art. If you've ever studied art, you know that Raphael did not get his imagery of angels from this text. All right? These are glorious and magnificent beings. Seraphim uh, means burning ones. Or as my friend Isaac would, would help me to think about, because he's uh, Jewish and he knows Hebrew uh, better, he, he would describe these as not the ones who are burning themselves, but those capable of burning things, if that makes sense to us. But burning ones. All right. Thank you, Isaac, for that. Seraphim, plural, covering their face, covering their feet. No, not little cupids with bows and arrows. Not at all. Michelangelo, is he... Uh, painted the roof of the Sistine Chapel. Likewise, had probably not read Isaiah 6. If you look at his depiction, 
of angels. The angels in his presence knew enough to cover their face and their feet. God is revered by glorious beings in his presence. If one of these seraphs were to show up at your house, it would be shock and awe. You would fall at that being's feet in worship. And he is one of the little guys who guards the holiness of God and stands in his presence and bows before such glory. You you, you see the ranking here? God is revered. He is revered. Now, verse 3, this moment, imagine one called to another, And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And if I were to shout as loud as I could, I suspect I would not come close to this moment. We're told in verse 4, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of the one who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Even inanimate objects know enough to tremble at the declaration of his holiness. Now, you have heard us speak about different conventions and language. Uh, In different language, we use different tools to communicate things. And something that's repeated in, in the Bible is typically for emphasis. Holy would be for emphasis. Holy, holy would be really beating the drum loudly. Holy, 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 three times, appears about nothing else in the Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy. Only God is described with that three-part phrase. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now, the term holy is a rough one for us to understand. We often get ideas of holy people, and we think of them as kind of weird. Um, We're reminded by Peter that in the Old Testament, Leviticus, we're called to be holy because he is holy. I give you a little bit of help here on your study notes, the idea behind holy to, to cut or to separate. It's, a, it's, it's different. Absolute purity, of course. Otherness would be a part of this package as well in terms of understanding the word. Um, sometimes we think of God as like us, only, only different. And I, I'm often reminded of Psalm 50, where God speaks first person, rather than the psalm writer, and says, you thought I was just like you. Isn't that interesting? You thought I was just like you, meaning I suspect weak and lacking wisdom and powerless. You thought I was just like you, he says, Psalm 50, I will rebuke you, and I'll state the order, I'll state this in order before your eyes. You thought I was like you. Oh, you did. I asked earlier, what is your view of God? What is your view of God? Is he, is he kind of whimpering along saying, you all behave now. Come on, try a little harder. Is he wringing his hands in your view of God? Is he a grandpa in a recliner with a robe and slippers? Is he a, like a grandfatherly figure that kind of goes, tisk, tisk, don't you do that now. Is that, what it, is, that, is that him? What's your view of God? Or do you take it from the Bible? You see, there is... There is a a wedding 
in the Bible of the nearness of God, draw close, come near to me. And reverence and awe at his presence. That is, it is not a small deity who invites you to come close. And you will only value the coming close if you reverence him as he deserves. Otherwise, it'll be like having coffee with some neighbor who talks all the time. Huh? No, you will only understand nearness if you understand his majesty. And the Bible brings both together and says, behold your God. Three times holy. Now, verse 5 begins this section of Isaiah, the sinful man. Isaiah says at this moment, this glorious moment of the building shaking and smoke and a train of this robe and exalted throne, and he says, woe is me, for I am lost or I am ruined or I am coming apart at the seams. All of those would be helping us to understand the word that's used. I am, I am done. I'm done with. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. In other words, what am I doing here? Why am I in the room in, such, in, the, in the presence of such glory? I say things I shouldn't say. He's not just saying, oh, now and then I drop a bad word. That's not the point. It's I'm a man with unclean lips, and my words flow from my heart, which is unclean. And I hang out with people just like me. You'll notice a couple of things distinctly absent from this moment. First of all, he is not rushing quickly to say, hey, God, I sure a good thing I'm here. I'm not like those guys. Hey, the other day, I didn't mean it. There's no self-justifying going on. He's not looking around saying, I'm better than him, him, her. Oh, certainly that person. Wow. He's not comparing anything. Now, at this moment of acute awareness of sin, oh, please, Get this, what does he need the most? Does he need someone to come alongside as you and I might be tempted to do and say, Isaiah, 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 chin up, big guy. You're not that bad. You're having a lousy day. A little self-esteem here, huh? Come on, other people are far worse. Well, I mean, come on, dry your tears. You'll, you'll get over it. Is that, would that be helpful here? Well, no, it's, it's, it would probably, for many of us, be our first reaction. Somebody confronted with their sin, the holiness of God. At this moment, he doesn't need comfort so much as he needs cleansing. See, he needs forgiveness. He needs forgiveness. And if we dodge that and just offer him a hug, we are not serving this friend very well. This is, a, this is a person who's guilty before a holy God. This isn't false guilt. Sometimes we feel guilty, and we're not guilty of any sin. That's false guilt. This is the real thing. Yeah, he's, he's, that's true. Guilty before a holy God. And he sees it, and he knows it. Now, if the text were to end at the end of verse 5, Isaiah would be hopeless. He would be undone. He would have come apart. That's the ruined idea. I, he, he'd been coming apart in the presence of God with no answer. But, but God, God acts in redemption. See this? It's the action of God 
one of the seraphim, so a seraph flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he's taken from the, with tongs from the altar. How interesting that a burning one, you could translate it this way, one of the burning ones uses tongs to take a coal. Man. And he takes that coal, comes to Isaiah, and it says he touched his lips, touched his mouth, which Isaiah had used as symbolism for him being completely lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And he presses that hot coal on Isaiah's lips. And this pronouncement, think of the glory of this. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Can you imagine? aren't, aren't Aren't those amazing words? Hey, guilty sinner, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, in the text, that coal is coming from the altar, which in Old Testament symbolism, there's an altar for incense. Then there's the main altar on which sacrifices were made for sin. Now, you will remember from this pulpit and other classes and so on, in the Bible, the Old Testament, describing all these sacrifices, those Old Testament sacrifices never paid, paid for sin. They covered sin until the perfect sacrifice would come, that is Jesus. The Old Testament sacrifices pointed to the perfect one who was to come. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for sin for all time, before and after. Jesus paid it all, right? So this this coal that's taken from the altar and brought to Isaiah is, is symbolic of that place of redemption that ultimately points to Jesus, you see? And so Isaiah is cleansed with that symbolism in mind, I think. Your guilt is is taken away. Your sin atoned for. There was no other way for Isaiah to be cleansed. There was no moment here for him to say, I'll try harder. Look, 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 I'll start going to church. No, really, I will. Remember that Bible reading plan I got to day three? I'll, I'll read it the whole year. I really, I, really, God, there's, there's no place here for that. None of us is redeemed by God on the basis of good stuff you do. You don't earn it. No one could. No one could. There's an old song, not the labor of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands? Could my zeal no respite know? In other words, even though I just went crazy about all this religious stuff, could my tears forever flow? Could I, could I repent enough? All of this, all for sin, could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. There's no other way for a guilty sinner to be at peace with God than atonement that comes directly from his hand. Now, I put on your notes here, Isaiah acknowledges deep shame at his true sinfulness. Indeed, he says, woe is me. He needs purification that only God can provide. He's humbled and cleansed. And then you have this interesting moment where he responds to the call of God. Verse eight, I don't think it's intended to be humorous, but there's a certain interest at least in this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
you remember, here's Isaiah in this room, and you've got this vision of God sitting on a throne and seraphim and smoke, and the place is shaking, and holy, 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 and he's just been cleansed, and God says, I need a volunteer. Imagine. Now, you don't find anybody else in the room, and I don't suspect that Isaiah looks around and says, I guess it's me. I don't think so. You understand, you probably remember second grade when the teacher asked, who knows how to do this math problem? And some kid is always sitting there going, oh, 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 call on me, call on me, call on me. And other kids are kind of, yeah, call on him, call on him, you know. Um, I don't know how it played out for Isaiah, but he, he hasn't even heard the job description. He didn't know what it is yet. I need a volunteer. Anybody? Well, if it comes from the holy God who has just cleansed you, Isaiah rightly responds with the instinct of saying, yes, I'll do it. Here am I, send me. And then God tells him this terrible job description. Isaiah, you're going to be a prophet for me, but nobody will believe you. You're going to go preach. Nobody will listen. You're going to be the pastor of this church, and anytime you give an invitation, nobody will go come forward. There'll be little life change. Their eyes will be shut. Their ears will be closed. It's going to go poorly. Isaiah says in verse 11, how long? And God says, until, until judgment is done. So go, until judgment is done, the cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. It's going to be a while. How long, O oh Lord? I don't think it changed Isaiah's willingness at all. Isaiah says, here am I, send me, motivated not by how he will feel afterwards, not by how it will bolster his self-esteem, but motivated instead by the presence of a holy God whose glory filled the room. I want you to think with me about these three areas so listed on your sermon notes, responding to God's word in worship and obedience God-centered motivation, God-centered worship, and God-centered devotion. And I, I want to take just a couple of minutes with these. I, I, I wonder why we do what we do. Each of these, as you notice, has a question there. What motivates us? What motivates you? Sometimes we motivate people to volunteer for things by telling them how much they're going to enjoy it. Don't we do that? It's going to be great. You're going to love three- and four-year-olds. No, really, they'll love you. Sticky stuff and glue everywhere. No, it's wonderful. It'll leave you feeling energized for the week. Almost, well, we try not to say things that are just outright lies. But we, we offer motivations like that. You'll feel good. No, really, you will. Um, many people will recognize you. You, you know, you'll, we'll give you a prize at the end of the year, and everybody will like, oh, man. Sometimes people are invited to give money in ways that are very public. Everybody will notice how much money you give. I think about that sometimes at auctions. Who'd like to give $5,000? Well, if you raise your hand, what is, what is everybody going to think of me? Boy, he's loaded. What a generous man. There's self-interest here to some degree. Maybe you could say, oh, no, no, certainly not me. Maybe so. There's so many things that, that we think about. Will I feel good about this? Will it bolster my self-esteem? Will other people notice? Yeah, well, 
Isaiah was in the presence of a holy God. And uh, I think that was motivation enough. I will serve him till the day I die, even if I don't feel good about it at the end of the day, because nobody responded. That's what I'm going to do, whatever the cost. God-centered worship. Now, the text does not say this, but I suspect that Isaiah is not too worried about the music being slightly flat. I don't think it was, because I'm sure that in heaven, everything will be perfect pitch. Don't you think? I would think so. I would think the heavenly choirs, if indeed it works out that way, I think everyone will come in and out at the right places. Perfect. But I suspect that even if the music was a little flat or whatever, if Isaiah looked down and realized he had the wrong sandals on, I think as he came to this moment, he was captured by God, not worried about himself. You suppose? Captured by God. His attention completely arrested. God. And I don't think he was thinking about himself. Does God get my attention when I come to worship? And then God-centered devotion. And the story in Luke 7 that I'm referring to here deserves a whole sermon, really, But Jesus is at a dinner party put on by a rich and famous guy, Simon the Pharisee, and influential people are in the room. I mean, muckety-mucks, they're pretty good people. I mean, society's, you know, elite. And in comes this lady who everybody knows is a sinner. And she approaches Jesus and weeps, wipes his feet. And Simon the Pharisee is wondering, he's indignant, This man can't be a prophet or else he'd know what kind of person that is. And it's in that context that Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven little loves little. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. I wonder which of those categories you see yourself in. Are you one who has been forgiven little? or you think you have been. See, I think that's the core of our problem, is we start to think as we compare ourselves with people instead of the holiness of God, we come to think that we're among that group who doesn't need much forgiveness. Jesus died for those. Yeah, I know he died for me, but he really died for those guys. In fact, it took just as much of the blood of Jesus to save you and you, and you, and you, every one of us, as it did to save the worst. Indeed, the one who thinks he or she has been forgiven little will tend to love little, maybe not that grateful to God. But the one who knows, oh God, you've been merciful to me, a sinner, will tend to love more. Well, Isaiah 6 captures our attention with the vision of what God is like. Isaiah will return to that topic as we get to chapter 40, again in full display, the power of God. But here I would just want to say to us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, I hope you're not over, over it. I hope you're not over the idea that God has forgiven you, a guilty sinner, 
We get over things. I hope you're not over it. I hope you never cease to be amazed that God would love the world so much that he would send a savior to die for you. And if you're a person who's thinking about it, mulling it over, listening later, I don't know. Listen, it'd be my prayer that today would be the day that God would grab your heart, even as he grabs Isaiah's attention here, that he would grab your heart and that today would be the day that God would redeem you. Trusting Christ is your savior from sin. I hope that would be the day for you. Would to God that it be so. I want to pray for us. If you'd stand with me. Our Father, we often skate through life with a very small picture of you, a tame God, a small God, a God made in our image who affirms us in our struggles and bolsters our self-esteem and pats us on the back and winks at us when we fail. But, oh God, you are more glorious than that. The God of Isaiah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and here the God of Isaiah. Glorious in power, splendor, holiness. Oh God, would you capture our hearts with this? View of you would leave us not the same. Thank you that you're the God who redeems, that by your initiative, you approached Isaiah to cleanse him. And Father, would you do your work even now through your word in all of us, convicting of sin, giving gratefulness for redemption, and maybe for some, bringing them to a place of faith, maybe for the first time in their life, seeing the beauty of Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, this is your work. You're the redeemer. So redeem. Draw men and women to yourself through the gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.